In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes I'll give a sermon more than once. I've given this one on a Maundy Thursday to not that many people. And it also fits today, the Feast of Christ the King. Every year I pick a reading topic. For example, one year it was the writer Walker Percy. Near-death experience was my reading topic in 2012. It was a very popular subject that year. I read Dr. Eben Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven, and many other near-death experience reports and studies. That literature is a cacophony of worldviews. As Christian fundamentalists and scientific materialists and New Age spiritualists offer competing explanations for near-death reports. Materialists believe that reality consists of energy and matter and nothing more. So near-death experience must have a purely neurochemical or psychological explanation. For example, Dr. Ronald Siegel suggests that the trauma of imminent death calls forth religious fantasies so powerful that images originating within the rooms of the brain may be perceived as though they came from outside the windows of the senses. Spiritualists tell a different story based on the belief that souls are disembodied spirits. Dr. Raymond Moody, who was one of the founders of modern near-death studies, has hosted events where mediums channel spirits of the dead to people in, for, for people in the congregation. Christian faith cannot endorse either materialism or spiritualism. Materialism denies God, whose existence we affirm, and whose character we believe we know in detail. Spiritualism is also, at many points, inconsistent with the gospel, which is why we do not find a liturgy for channeling in the Book of Common Prayer. If we aren't materialists and we're not spiritualists, what are we? Ours is a sacramental worldview, believing that there is more to reality than energy and matter. We understand the universe as a creation, like a play or a novel. Life has an author, characters, a plot with twists and turns. It's an unfolding drama. And there is a central figure, Christ the King, whose arrival within that drama, T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. And we find liturgies describing all of this throughout the Book of Common Prayer. So do we believe them? Walker Percy, who did believe them, also thought that Southern Christianity ran only skin deep. Most of the men he knew, lawyers, duck hunters, golfers, deep down were materialists and stoics. They live in the shadow of a Christian edifice, as G.K. Chesterton had described this type, that stand grumbling on the porch, neither leaving nor going in. 
The women in Percy's stories, good-looking and good-hearted for the most part, lean spiritualist. In Love in the Ruins, Dr. Tom Moore, thinking about his wife, says, There is a certain type of Episcopal girl who just past youth will commence buying antiques and develop a yearning for esoteric doctrines. In the moviegoer, Binks Bowling finally remembers his aunt who described herself as an Episcopalian by emotion, a Greek by nature, and a Buddhist by choice. That's the old South that I know and love. Materialists and spiritualists agree that church is not important. Materialists are interested in church only insofar as its influence occasionally impinges on things that do count, like science, politics, and economics. Spiritualists regret that the church is interested in the wrong things, like rules and dogma. Within our sacramental worldview, church is important. Among other reasons, church is important as bearer of the torch by whose light science, politics, and economics can discover their own origin, meaning, and importance. The material world, the arena of science, politics, economics, golf, duck hunting, and antiquing, is the theater for the drama of God's unfolding involvement with humankind. As the story goes, God came as king, the prince disguised as pauper, to help us, to create a relationship with us, a bond, and doing that not by force, but by love and freedom, appealing to our ability to recognize the beautiful and the true and the good and to choose it. And the name of that choice is faith, and its shape is church. Christ has died, we say in church. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's our mantra. And it identifies decisive moments in this unfolding story. And we gather today along the line between the second moment, Christ is risen, and the third, Christ will come again in glory, which is described in Matthew's gospel as a time when we confront the truth of what we've done within our lives, how well we've lived them. We're in the between time, Bart said, between that second moment and the third. And how long that interval is, no one knows. In his book, The Church Dogmatics, Karl Barth says, the fact that Christ is risen is enough to tell us all we need to know. Already we live in the strength of the resurrection. Already we live by the light of Easter day. The church already has behind it the end which it awaits, Barth said. So we are secure. Take heaven, for example. There is a simple proof of it. If God is powerful enough to create an afterlife in heaven, and if God is good enough to want to, then an afterlife in heaven there will be. In Christ, we see that God is that powerful and that good. Given Christ and the laws of logic, that's a proof of heaven. And it comes with an assurance of your value as a human being, 
of your spiritual nature and your moral responsibility, of the goodness and pathos of the world around you, of the limits that God has placed on evil's capacity to harm you, and of the grace through which you and all your faults have found redemption. You and me too. And we know these things already. They are as true as two and two makes four. That is why we are secure. And now, the problem. Unlike two and two makes four, it takes faith to know all this. And compared to certain other kinds of knowledge, the assurances of faith seem relatively weak. Thomas Aquinas knew this, and he knew why. It's because our inbuilt knowing apparatus is built primarily with earth in mind. As proof, we will take sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell over faith and logic seven days a week. That is why Dr. Alexander's book, Proof of Heaven, outsells Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, which is a much better book. I've read them both, and I can tell you. The author, Dr. Alexander, who had been one of Walker Percy's Southern Stoics, a materialist before this happened, woke up from a coma one day saying quite sincerely that he had been to heaven and he had seen the place with his own two eyes. And instantly he became a spiritualist, jumping over sacramentalist. And that is also why a convincing medium might be reassuring to a grieving parent who has just lost a child in a way that reasonable believing is not always. Comparing the certainty of science to that of faith, Aquinas said that faith gives us both less certainty and more. More in that faith's knowledge of God is grounded in God's own certainty about himself, which is a firmer ground than the reasoning process that makes science possible. Yet it's also less certain in that where science and logic claim truth, we can see the reasons for it, while faith is left to scratch its head sometimes. That's why my doctorate in theology, which it took me 10 years to earn, does not command your attention in matters concerning, for example, grace, in the same way that a doctorate in medicine does concerning heart disease or cancer. But even so, grace is our most deeply needed medicine. What is grace? Asks the Book of Common Prayer. And then it tells us, Grace is God's favor towards us, unearned, undeserved. By grace, God forgives our sins, enlightens our minds, stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. Grace is what happens in the bond between ourselves and God as we recognize the good and beautiful and we choose it. It's where the spiritual takes material effect. It's where it's in the, in the intelligence, grace surfaces as faith. In the memory, memories are often so painful. Grace surfaces as hope. And in the will, it surfaces as love. I love you when I believe your good is as important as my own, when I desire it, and when I help you get it insofar as I am able. That's grace in the will. When we pray for grace, faith, hope, and love is what we're praying for. 
That prayer is answered with a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. Sacraments, we call them. In our sacramental worldview, these little tastes of bread and wine are signs of grace just as sure as two and two makes four. The symbols were carefully chosen. What does wine suggest? Happiness. Wine maketh glad the heart of man, it says in Scripture. What is bread? Sustenance, the food we live by. The analogy is clear. What bread and wine are materially in us, Christ is spiritually in us. Jesus spells that out. He says in Luke, the kingdom is new wine. In John, he says, I'm living bread come down from heaven. And on the night of his betrayal, Christ the King adds his own impending death to the meaning in these symbols. He adds another layer of meaning. This bread is my body. This cup is my blood. Tomorrow is a sacrifice. I'm the lamb. Holy Communion puts us in that room that night with Jesus. There he moves us by his faith. Betrayed, facing execution, he knows the plot, he understands his part, and he is resolved to play it through. But he's scared. Now my soul is troubled. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason I have come to this hour. So here at the origin of Christian faith, in Christ himself, faith finds its best possible example. And now Holy Communion puts him in this room today with us. This is my body. This is my blood. This is your pardon, your happiness. This is your life right here, right now. And we suffer sometimes, yes, as he did. And our sufferings are not as worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. And we are disappointed sometimes, often with ourselves and sometimes by others. And yet, as it was true for him, it is true for us that no matter how disappointed we are with ourselves, we can wake up in the morning and to realize that to play a part in human history today is our privilege and our responsibility. And we are weak sometimes, often, as he felt weak. But in the grace that lets his weakness be our strength and his death, our resurrection.